This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. I'm Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, February the 15th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Arno Kopecki will discuss a few environmental issues and policies coming together in Alberta and British Columbia, including the Federal Just Transition Act. That's coming up in about 20 minutes or so on the show, but let's begin the hour with the regional news updates. Beginning in BC, Vancouver City Council has approved $2.46 million for its street cleaning program this year. The money is earmarked for six different organizations to do cleanup work. The project is on top of standard city cleaning efforts. It involves daily collection of litter and needles on foot using brooms, shovels and carts. The city says the program created over 71,000 work hours for people with barriers to employment last year. Workers collected 34,000 bags of litter and nearly 110,000 needles. Over to the prairies where the province of Alberta is going to bolster policing in downtown Calgary by deploying 12 sheriffs to work with local police. Minister of Public Safety Mike Ellis hopes this will dissuade some criminal activity in the city core. The three-month pilot project is similar to one announced for downtown Edmonton. Over to Ontario, where Ontario's Minister of Finance will provide an update today on the province's economic outlook. Peter Bether Falvey will give the third quarter fiscal update this afternoon. The province is expected to run a budget deficit this year. And finally, in the Atlantic provinces, the 2023 Canada Winter Games begin later this week in PEI. The two-week event starts Saturday with official opening ceremonies in Charlottetown. Several para sports will be featured throughout the games. Officials are expecting about 3,600 athletes and coaches to attend. The games will be supported by 5,000 volunteers. From one sports story to another, Brock Richardson is here for a sports chat. Okay, Brock, lots of soccer news to round up here, beginning with the announcement heading into the 2026 World Cup. Some automatic qualifiers already on the board. Yes, and I think this is... Uh, something that a lot of people expected, but we were just waiting for the confirmation. So we do now know officially that Canada, United States, and Mexico will automatically qualify for the World Cup in 2026, as all three of those nations are part of the host um, cities, if you will, uh, for this event. Again, I don't think it comes as any surprise. It's just kind of been rubber stamped and finalized that uh, this will be a thing. Yeah, host countries always get an automatic bid into the World Cup. It's obviously a bit strange when there's three host countries giving three bids. For the U.S. and Mexico, Brock, it doesn't strike me as a particularly big deal. Those two countries have been giants in CONCACAF in this particular division for a long time. They're pretty much guaranteed to make the majority of World Cups. 
It does concern me that Canada is getting the automatic buy because this is a team that, although doing really well in qualifying last year for the World Cup, clearly hit a wall when they got to the big tournament. And I wonder, Brock, I wonder if knowing there's an automatic berth, I, I, it just makes me wonder if this country is going to stay as hungry as they need to heading into this World Cup in 2026. Yeah, as a, as a former athlete, I can speak to uh, from personal experience. Um, I had a lot of situations where I had automatic, um, you know, making the team uh, just because of my results in the previous year. And so when that happens, you do have to motivate yourself in a different way. And I don't mean motivate as far as representing your country. I mean motivate in the way that you're discussing of like, actual real game like the feel the things like that and it does take some time to um put your foot down and put mm-hmm. it to the metal i would say to you dave and i don't know that this is the end all be all of this but i would say the fact that you are a host should give you a little bit of mm-hmm. that whole like we got to do this for the country but I, right. again i don't know how much this would be a um you know, motivator versus real game action, as you say. Uh, Should be one more piece of context noted here, Brock. This particular World Cup in 2026 is going through a little bit of a format change where typically 32 teams have qualified for the World Cup. There's going to be 48 teams at this World Cup. So maybe that takes a little bit of that extra sort of saying, ah, Canada's getting a freebie here. Knowing that the qualification criteria changed, Canada probably would have made this tournament barring a disastrous qualifying round. But the one thing that now a lot of soccer fans are waiting on with pins and needles is what the format's actually going to look like because the traditional eight groups of four teams will no longer mathematically work. So they're, they have to go to the drawing board completely at FIFA to figure out how they're going to get down to 24 or 16 teams in the knockout stages, and they have no idea how they're going to do that. Yeah, because, again, that's that's less than half of the field by by that point and so you know you you would have to you'd have to do some pretty wicked magic and and some mathematics that is way above my pay grade on on the mathematics but yeah i do think canada would make it with that 48 team format which is something i forgot to note uh yesterday so glad you picked that up but i do think the game the game feel the game matches would make a difference and it kind of scares me as well that they don't need to be a part of it. Yeah. Uh, It's not all roses for Soccer Canada right now, Brock. The labor strife absolutely still continuing. It's it's bubbling on the men's side, and it's at a full-blown boil on the women's side. And even though the job action that was called off over the weekend by the women's team, there's still a lot of ramifications going on. Yes, there is. So uh, Jamie Becky, who is part of the women's uh, team, made some pretty strong comments uh, yesterday that go to our point of talking about equality. And what she said was, and I quote, it's pretty disgusting that we have to ask for equality. We won the damn Olympic Games and we have a good team and could win the World Cup. It just emphasizes our point here, uh, what she's saying. And you can literally see the frustration in these comments. And it's unfortunate that this is where we are brock 
yesterday you and I dove a bit deeper into equity funding across sports. The one thing we never quite got into is how that may impact the mentality of an athlete. In this case, for the Canadian women's team, the idea of representing your country that doesn't quite seem invested in you in the way you want it to be, how does that play into an athlete's brain? It's a real tough thing because there's a half of your head that says, listen, I this is frustrating me. We're not being shown uh, equal. We're, we're not being shown like we care. And then the other half of your brain goes, but I really want to represent Canada. And there's really that pride of, of representing your country. So it is that literal push-pull between morals and values to an extent and what you really believe in and that you believe that you should be supported in what you're doing. And also that idea that you're living through a dream and saying, I get to represent the country. It is very difficult. And I made the remark um, on the neutral zone uh, the other day about as athletes, we, we have to recognize that exact point that when we don't believe in, in, in something that's going on, we have to weigh out what is, what's better here, what we believe in or the representing of the country. And those, those two things are sometimes really hard to collide with each other and making mm. the right decision because it literally is a push-pull situation. <laughs> Brock, speaking of representing your country, it also happens to be Flag Day, International Flag Day. Mm. And uh, Alex Smythe is going to tackle that in a roundtable conversation a little bit later in this hour. But in a conversation you had on the Neutral Zone this week with Devin Aru of CBC Sports, the idea of Russia and Belarus returning to the Olympic Games in 2024 was brought up by Devin, and he had suggested the possibility that Russia and Belarus may find themselves under one of these neutral flag situations, maybe not totally dissimilar to what uh, the Russian team has gone through since the doping scandals under the uh, Russian Olympic Committee flag for several games in a row. What was it that Devin said that really jumped out to you? Uh, a couple of things. First of all, Devin said that uh, there is a lot of countries, including Canada, that are signing petitions that say, listen, we don't believe that, that these two nations should be a part of the games because uh, there was a lot of unrest at the last games when they were unknown as to whether they would be coming and, you know, with the wars going on and all this. And and he said, and a lot of nations are getting on board to the point that we even brought up the point about what what about the idea of boycotting? And, and, and he kind of went around that. He didn't want to say that that's what they would do, but that, that is a possibility. I don't see that happening. And that's what led me to, you know, get on to the point at the end of the podcast about, if you don't feel strongly about what your org, um, your committee is doing and cite the country here, then you as an athlete need to step back and separate what what is really important to you and what you need to do. And that's a real tough thing to do. I, Dave, I got to be honest with you and say, I don't like this Olympic athletes from name the country. We are not that silly of a society. I wanted to use another word, but I chose not to. We're not we're not that silly of a society not to recognize where those athletes are from. So if if you're going to make a stance and say we're not supporting the flag, 
then you may want to say we're not supporting the athletes coming. But then the flip side of that is, are all the athletes, you know, supporting the wars? Probably not. And so is it fair? And then we get into, are we going too far into the political side of things? And that's the big question. Yeah, there's no answer that you and I can come to here on a Wednesday morning that will be satisfactory. Um, it it it's just at a point though where it it's it's really tough when you start pick and choosing your moral causes as an organization, whether it be individual Olympic committees or whether it be the Olympics more broadly. Uh, they they had an Olympics last year in a country in China where genocide is happening, like <laughs> openly genocide is happening, and they were like, oh, what are you gonna do? Got to do the Olympics, got to get the money. So it's it's one of these things where I obviously do not support. <laughs> I don't support the invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia and Belarus, but I'm also going to tell you I don't support the invasion of Yemen by Saudi Arabia. I don't support uh, the the conflict going on between Azerbaijan and Armenia right now. There's so many unjust wars going on in the world that that if you're going to pick one, you better start picking them all. And when the Olympics becomes the morality police, I don't know that I trust that organization to actually have the capacity to be the morality police. They held an Olympics in Nazi Germany, Brock. Like, I know it was 100 years ago, but they held an Olympics in Nazi Germany. Like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here when we're having this conversation? And the question is, is it on the Olympic committees to be that moral police? And that's when we when we had, and again, I strongly suggest you go check out the full episode of The Neutral Zone because we genuinely had a good conversation, but I'm giving you a little bit of tidbits here. I asked the panel, I said, are we expecting these Olympic committees to delve into political, where that whole thing of, ah, stick to sports, stay in sports, yes, but sports is now becoming political, sadly, and... Oh, no, Brock, sports has always been political. Sports has always been political. Yes, it's just, it's becoming more and, like, more in in your face, it's becoming more political... Maybe it's because when I grew up, I didn't realize it. But in the last, like, 10, 15 years, it's like, oh, this is just, you know, not nice. And there there are places that are fighting, you know, to, to not have Olympics because they don't want it. Because it's it's not enough, you know, viable for them. And it's just becoming too much. And it's it's unfortunate because, again, we should focus on the athletes. But unfortunately, with it being so political it's tough to do yeah sports has always been political it's just that politics has gotten more toxic in the last 10 or 15 years therefore making the politics of sport more toxic but sports have always been political you go back to that nazi germany olympic games that i referenced with a black athlete winning a gold medal and hitler having to watch him stand on that podium like that was political him raising his arm in solidarity that was political muhammad ali protesting the Vietnam War. That was political. Sports and politics have intersected forever. It's just that politics have become increasingly toxic. Brock, let's uh, jump over to some Canadian domestic sports news. This is uh, a weird story, and I almost feel it got almost too little conversation as it broke yesterday. The CFL, the Canadian Football League, has taken over ownership and operation of the Montreal Alouettes after a, uh, well, one of their, their majority owner passed away last year, and the estate no longer has interest in running the team. Brock, your reaction to the CFL taking over ownership of uh, one of the uh, one of the bigger teams in the country? It's something that when you have you know the the previous owners you mentioned pass away and then the estate saying you know we don't have any interest in this anymore something has to be done 
um but it just seemed to be it came out of nowhere like it it was like oh the cfl is taking over you know the montreal alouettes which is one of the in in this part of the country one of the places that does well in the cfl uh, football and and they've done well over the years. It just seems like this story has snuck up on you. But again, with the situation, I'm not sure what other option the CFL may have had for the interim to yeah. say. Listen, I guess we're gonna put Mario Ciccini in here as an interim. But the poor guy is like, probably, huh? Like, I'm how long am I in here? Like, there's just so many unanswered questions that. You know, a guy that's there for the interim is going to start doing operational things, and then they're going to say, oh, we're going to insert name person X here, and then that person's going to do their thing. It's just, it's a weird, weird situation. Uh it should be noted this was a very recent transaction of this new ownership group buying the team. I believe it was 2019 when the team was actually purchased by this current ownership group. So it's not even as if they had a lot of time to be stable. The thing that's really hurt Montreal, and you know I love the city with all my heart, Brock. It's where I grew up. It's, it's still where home is for me. Montreal is a bit of a fair weather city. They love supporting a team that's winning, and the Alouettes have not consistently done that since Anthony Calvillo retired in 2012, 2011, whenever it was. It's been a decade with that team out in the wilderness, and that coincided right at the time they just finished some nice renovations at Molson Stadium. So they expanded the capacity of the stadium while going on a U-turn of quality of team play. So the, the one thing about Montreal and the Alouettes is when you're good, the city's there for you in the summer. When you're bad, the city is going to have trouble caring in the way that you want them to. And Montreal has very much become an NFL city. It's it's just a city where when you go to the bar on Sunday, nobody's clamoring for the Alouettes to be on the screen. They're clamoring for Red Zone to be on the screen or for the Dolphins to be on the screen or for the Jets or the Giants or the Patriots or the take your pick. The NFL has just become such a behemoth and in a city like Montreal that doesn't necessarily identify through a Canadian identity lens, there's almost more of an appeal of that Americana that is the NFL. So th this, I don't think this is the death blow to the Alouettes in Montreal, but I think this is, a, this is not a great sign for the overall health of this team. Yeah, but also, could you could you make that? You could make that same argument for the Montreal Canadiens. If they're not doing well, may, maybe not this year because I've seen pretty, pretty good crowds, but if they're not doing well in the past, people people do sort of fall off. I, I think it's a it's a team thing where you just kind of say, well, my team's not doing well. Um, I, I'm not going to support. And with the CFL being so gate-driven this is a dangerous thing to do, especially with the renovations that you've just cited and adding seats when you're not even filling the seats that you already had existing there. And then you add more and it's, it's just a mess. But the CFL, I believe as a whole, is in sort of this um, slippery slope, especially when they asked the federal government at the beginning of the pandemic and they said, hey, can we get a bunch of money? Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the federal government said no. From that point, I believe the CFL is on a slippery slope and Montreal is just sort of falling into that sort of trap too now because the CFL is in trouble because the NFL is king through all of Canada and not just Montreal. But it is so gate-driven, Dave, yeah. so gate-driven. People will accuse us of a little bit of an Ontario myopia here. People in Winnipeg, Saskatchewan, 
and Alberta will tell us to shut up. The CFL is perfectly healthy. Maybe we're moving towards uh, that level where there's just four great teams in the middle of the country <laughs> and everybody else is just playing on the side. Brock, we got to get out of here. Thanks for this, buddy. Thank you. That is Brock Richardson, the host of the Neutral Zone at the AMI Sports Desk. Alex Smythe is at the AMI Weather Desk. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada, starting off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. It's mainly sunny today with a high of minus 3 and just feeling like minus 14. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's mainly sunny today. The high is 2 degrees. It's feeling like minus 17 with that wind chill. To St. John, New Brunswick, it is sunny with clouds and possible showers this afternoon. The high is 5 degrees, but with the wind chill, it feels like minus 12. In Quebec City, Quebec, there's periods of rain and possible freezing rain throughout the day today. The high is 4 degrees, but again, with that wind chill, makes it feel like minus 15. To Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with possible rain this morning and early afternoon, and then clearing up, becoming a bit more like a mix of sun and clouds. There are strong winds, there's wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour, but the high today is 15 degrees. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, there's periods of rain changing to periods of snow this afternoon. Wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is 5 degrees, feeling like minus 3. In Brandon, Manitoba, it's sunny with clouds and possible snow rolling in later. The high is minus 12, but with that wind chill, it makes it feel like minus 33. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it is mainly cloudy with light snow expected today. The high is minus 9, feeling like minus 32. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's mainly sunny today. The high is minus 1. The wind chill makes it feel like minus 17. To Red Deer, Alberta, it is a mix of sun and clouds. There is a chance of snow in the forecast as well. The high is minus 4 and feeling like minus 23 with that wind chill. The Whitehorse, Yukon, there's snow this morning, but then clearing up in the afternoon, up to four centimeters is set to fall this morning. There's also wind gusts of 50 kilometers per hour. The highest minus four, feeling like minus 20 with that wind chill. Now over to Kelowna, BC, where it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of three degrees. And finally in Vancouver, similar conditions, a mix of sun and clouds, but a high of six degrees today. And that's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, federal policies like the Just Transition Act are causing some political issues in Alberta when talking about environment. So we'll do a bit of compare and contrast in the way that Alberta and BC are handling some of these issues. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Climate policy and environmental issues can be something of a hodgepodge across Canada. It's not just the balancing act the federal government engages in with their own policies, but every province has their own plans when it comes to natural resource development, energy policy, and 
intergovernmental approaches. Those contrasts are coming to light in Western Canada. Journalist Arno Kopecki can offer some perspective on a few different stories. Hey, good morning, Arno. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm well. So, Arno, let's start with the conversation in Alberta. Premier Daniel Smith has been sounding the alarm about the federal government's Just Transition Act. Before addressing Daniel Smith's characterization, what's at the core of the Just Transition Act? Sure. So the just transition, the idea of it actually was born in the Paris Agreement in 2015, uh, that huge global accord uh, that sort of sets most of the world's climate ambitions these days. And uh, they just articulated the fact that or the notion that uh, the country, the world's oil producing countries have a responsibility to help people who work in the oil industry transition out of it as the world transitions away from fossil fuels to clean sources of energy. And so there are, of course, millions of workers around the world who help produce this oil and get it to market and into pipelines and build the pipelines. And um, if you want to be kind and and just about this transition, the, the idea is not to leave them in the lurch. And so Canada now is setting getting ready to introduce legislation that would enshrine that principle into law and it's called the just transition act and it's simply the notion that we should help retrain those workers who are young enough to keep working and uh, for those who might be you know in their 50s or ready almost ready to retire maybe put together some retirement packages and a whole suite of things like that that's that's the principle at the heart of this it has yet to be it's, it's still just a principle it hasn't been mm-hmm. uh the details have yet to be worked out but that's that's the core notion as those details are being worked out how is premier smith framing this policy predictably i would say <laughs> uh as as an attack on alberta on an, an attack on the workers of alberta as an attempt to uh, destroy the oil industry. She has said uh, variously that 100,000 jobs, 2.7 million jobs um, are going to be swiped out. There was an internal briefing note that uh, that her, she and her ministers have sort of seized and mischaracterized because uh, in this briefing note to, I believe it was Jonathan Wilkinson, the Minister of Natural Resources, uh, it was noted that there are something like 2.4 million jobs around the world that are going to be impacted by the energy transition. Um, That is not to say that the federal government is planning to eliminate 2.4 million jobs or even the hundred some thousand jobs in Alberta that are directly uh, associated with the oil industry. But she uh, has said that, you know, they're trying to kill our industry. They're trying to fire all our workers, get out of our quit meddling in our prosperity. Arno, this, this next question is a bit of a scramble, so feel free to take your time with the spatula right. to work your way through it. Um, <laughs> I'll have a sip of coffee. <laughs> I, I, I called the federal government's climate policy a balancing act in the intro, especially when it comes to energy, natural resources. How would you describe the way the feds approach the energy industry, maybe especially in some of the economic context? Uh, even today, we heard about some record profits going on uh, with one of the major oil companies in the country. Sure. Yeah, they are, you know, I think a a slightly cynical view, which has a lot of truth to it, is that they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, because there is just a ton of money to be made. And that is being made. You know, Canada is, of course, the fourth or fifth uh, largest producer of oil in the world. Uh, The oil industry globally just had its most profitable year in history. um, And Alberta was a big part of that. And that money flows into our coffers. So, 
Canada is not trying to curtail oil production, uh, and they can't actually federally because the production falls into provincial mandates. So there's no legal mechanism by which Ottawa can say you may not produce X amount of oil. What they can do and what they are doing is saying you have to limit your emissions. And so they are forcing or trying to force Albertan oil producers to lower emissions. And that's there's a number of ways you can do that by, you know, uh, mostly at, at the production stage. Carbon capture is, of course, a big one um, that has a very, very spotty record of success. The other thing that the feds are trying to do is basically uh, domestically within Canada, they're trying to electrify our economy. And, and so basically get ca Canadians to be using less fossil fuels, everything through more, um, more, uh, transit, public transit, and electric vehicles, of course, and heat pumps, and a whole suite of ways that we can shift to clean renewable energy and electrify everything at home, uh, while also still profiting off of all the oil we sell abroad, primarily to the United <laughs> States. So that's that's kind of the game that they're playing. Um, there's also been some really amazing reporting that's come out in the last couple of weeks about how intense and successful the oil lobbying has been. Um, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers has, since COVID hit and sort of threatened the oil industry, they have ramped up their lobbying efforts in Ottawa and just logged an insane amount of, of meetings with, with senior ministers and deputy ministers in the civil service. And so there's been some really interesting reporting coming out about just how many meetings and who they're having with and their impact on sort of watering down some of the climate legislation uh, that, that's happened. So uh, I think there's an irony here that, you know, the, the, that, that Al Danielle Smith and Albertans and, and, and the pro-oil camp is saying, how dare you attack our industry like this, when in fact, uh, Many of us feel that uh, the, quite the opposite is true, that, that Ottawa is really letting the oil industry get away with, with murder in a way, because let's not forget the reason for these oil profits of this last year has been the war in Ukraine and mm. Russia's curtailment of, of oil uh, production or sorry, yeah. The constraint of oil in in, in Europe has just skyrocketed mm -hmm. the price of oil and that's what we're profiting from. Arno, forgive me if this metaphor is like too big of a stretch, but so oftentimes people will conflate workers with their industry rather than separate those two things. It's maybe yeah. it's maybe not too, it's not dissimilar to the chance uh, during protests to the Vietnam War. It's not that we're against the soldiers; we're against the war, right? That, that, that you that it's mm. in theory it is possible to separate. Uh, treating workers with dignity and respect and making sure workers still have a way to make reasonable wages and make good money while also acknowledging there are some industry concerns. Totally, Dave. You know, I, I think you've nailed it. That's not a stretch at all. Uh, for a long time, I think Albertans and Alberta work people who worked in the oil industry were somewhat justified in their sense of being attacked personally for working in this industry when in reality, you know, we're all just products of the system that, that we live in and we grow up in. I grew up in Alberta, I, I'm an Edmonton boy. Um, a lot of my friends and uh, have worked in that industry. Um, there's, you know, that industry just saturates the province. There's no way you can grow up and not be a part of it in some way and, and rely on it in some way. And the environmental movement, I think, took a long time to come around to, to realizing like, hey, maybe it's not everybody's fault that they work in this industry or, or, or need it or benefit from it. Mm -hmm. And I think the Just Transition Act is a real, uh, rec you know, a way of recognizing that fact and, and an attempt to actually be fair and be cool about this and to stop vilifying people, which makes it all the 
the more frustrating that uh, it is being twisted in this way, that it is being characterized as yet another attempt to attack and 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 malign people who work in that industry. When it when it's quite the opposite, it's, mm -hmm. it's a real attempt to to be fair and and to treat people with dignity and and justice. Um, but the you know the right wing uh, that Danielle Smith represents has done just a bang up job of presenting any attempt at this kind of thing to be fair as just more woke pansy uh, i'm gonna try to avoid using bad expletives but they're really good you know please, the, please don't we don't have a dump key <laughs> right yeah yeah okay i'll, I'll be nice um I'll, I'll be i'll i'll clean up my own language along with the renewable energy um but you know uh, there's there's just this thing going on where where any attempt at at you know language and principles that represent justice and equity are are just twisted as like woke garbage and you yeah. know forget those guys we're gonna there's money to be made we're we're albertans we work hard get out of our business you liberal fairies yeah <laughs> you, did a very, you did a nice job there arno i like that let's 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 not dwell too much on this one but there was an awkward handshake between the prime minister and premier smith <laughs> yes. last week what do you think uh em, em, embodiment emblematic of a uh, frayed relationship or just some banter that distracts from bigger issues both could be true, I suppose. Uh, for those who didn't see it, there was this moment that went viral where uh, uh, Danielle Smith and, and Trudeau met for the first time, and she tried to take her hand away before he could grab it, and his hand sort of reaches down and grabs it and forces her to handshake. And I just thought that was, you know, it went viral because it was so comical, but it really represents the the you know the, the relationship <laughs> between Alberta and, and the federal government, where the the feds are like, we're going to help you whether you like it or not, and, and the Alberta's like, nope, we're not going to acknowledge any help whatsoever. Yeah, but it all, I think it also does speak a little bit to our industry uh, seeking banter rather than analysis because uh, when that's like the top story <laughs> yes, on highpolitics.ca yes. for two days it's it's a little much it's a little much yeah yeah, uh, yeah. Arno let's hop over the Rockies into British Columbia that government has sure. been taking a different approach when it comes to environment there's one particular agreement here that I played a very short news story on a few weeks ago but this probably deserves a, a little bit of uh, definition what makes the blueberry agreement such a significant piece of policy sure yeah so now we're really at the polar opposite way of dealing with these issues here in bc which is really heartening from a progressive environmental uh, indigenous rights standpoint so the blueberry nation is a first nation in the east uh, eastern fringe of, of british columbia and they are part of a, a group of treaty eight nations who have signed this agreement with british columbia which gives them uh, unprecedented amount of influence and control over not just their land but industry so this is a part of bc where all of the fracking for natural gas has been going on for decades the the environment there has just been really quite devastated you're seeing how beautiful it is there but uh you could also show other pictures that show it's just been clear cut and fracked and drawn and quartered over decades and so a few years ago the blueberry nation together with some others took the province to court about this uh and said you owe us uh significant damages um, for the cumulative impacts of all these industries, but especially natural gas. And they won that agree they won that court case at the provincial level. And then instead of appealing it as usually happens, the British Columbian government said, okay, you know what, we're gonna negotiate and talk and we're gonna try and uh, honor our duties uh, under the uh, UN's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, which BC is the first to sign. So long story short, uh, a few years later and just last month, 
they signed this huge historic agreement that that gives Blueberry Nation and soon a, a number of other nations in that region um, a, a lot of money to uh, restore the landscape and, and, and help ecosystems recover. Uh, it gives them a huge amount of say in how and where and when resource extraction will proceed and it gives them a huge amount of the profits from that industry so mm. it is uh it is hard to articulate just how big a deal this is um, because it really sets a model of cooperation and negotiation instead of this uh this fighting in court and you know everybody the government is just you have to drag the money and the power out of our cold dead hands mm -hmm. is, is how it's been for most of the last century and now there's a much more cooperative approach i think that that bc is is really paving the way on and it, it's quite heartening so that's the interior let's shift over yeah. to the coast because vancouver played host to a major conference on marine protection and there was yeah. a commitment protecting a large swath of coast especially in the northern part of british columbia what's your reaction to that bit of news Again, really heartening. As you said, uh, Vancouver hosted the International Marine Protected Area Congress last year. Uh, basically, a global effort to protect huge chunks of the ocean, especially as deep sea mining now starts to kick into high gear. And so out of this agreement or out of that meeting came an announcement that is uh, both federal and provincial, as well as with 15 coastal First Nations uh, whose territory uh, covers basically the northern half of our coastline here in BC. And they, it's 100,000 square kilometers or some huge amount like that. And they are basically saying, you know, there's going to be a moratorium on deep sea mining. And these 15 First Nations whose territory that encompasses, uh, they are going to have a huge amount of say in all the resource extraction that goes on here. So basically think fishing, um, but also deep sea mining. And it's modeled a little bit after some of your viewers may have heard of the Great Bear Rainforest. Um, which is the terrestrial part of that, you know, uh, this huge swath of islands and rainforest, and it's, it's quite a beautiful amphibious environment um, that also covers the North Coast. And there was a huge agreement that came out of there a few years ago that, that gave First Nations control over the logging and, and resource extraction that goes on land there. This now takes that same principle over to the water. And uh, and again, it's it's it's. I think it's really really significant. It it marks a, a significant amount of cooperation between the federal, provincial, and First Nations governments. And it's it's sort of setting a new trend. It's and it's also part of the federal government's commitment to preserve and and protect thirty percent of our lands and waters in Canada by the year twenty thirty. So. Uh, all in all, again, really hopeful and a step in the right direction, not just environmentally, but I would say socially, because we're mm. we're now we're, we're not fighting and, and overriding and ignoring First Nations, but we're actually uh, bringing them to the table and giving them not giving them. A, 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 they are <laughs> taking yeah. and, and receiving the back the the authority over the land that they that they always should have had in the first place. It, it's it's nation to nation building, which people have yeah. been advocating for years. And as you say, cooperation is at the heart of it. It's it's it's, it's understanding uh, where our place is in in this country as we move forward. But then, Arno, there is the flip side, which is going back to where we started this conversation. It's a bit of a political observation, if you will. Confederation, the division of powers between the feds and the provinces, has had its advantages and its drawbacks over the years. I'd argue that good climate policy and environmental policy does require coordination and rowing the boat in the same direction. How difficult does the division of powers make that? 
It makes it hard, Dave, of course, as you just said. I, I, I was thinking about this, and I don't know if there's an easy answer here. I mean, I think there's a, we live in a democracy, and there are various jurisdictions. I don't, I don't know how, you know, if you gave federal government all the power to just ram things down people's throats, then that would be problematic, too. And next time you have a conservative government, then imagine how tough that would make it for a pro progressive provincial government and, mm -hmm. and vice versa. So I think, you know, there's this division of powers and jurisdictions uh, exists for a reason. And democ what do they say about democracy? It's the worst system of government except for all the other ones. So <laughs> yeah. we just gotta we just gotta try and get involved. And the nice thing about provincial and civic politics, uh, municipal politics, is this is where our votes have the most impact and where where we can be most directly involved as citizens. So I really think it comes down to, to us to the extent that we mere puny mortals can can do anything about all of these big things uh it's really good to vote in in your local you know city and, and yeah. provincial elections even though much fewer people do then we tend to be drawn to the to the big national elections and, and that's where we think all the action is um stay don't engaged. to vote for your provincial leaders yeah stay engaged for sure arno we took a bunch of extra time from you today thank you for uh, being oh, so generous you. with it that was great. I really enjoyed it, Dave. Take care. That is journalist Arno Kopecki coming up after the break. I'll remind you of the Daily Poll. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back it's now with dave brown on ami tv just a quick reminder about today's daily poll which you can find at accessible media on twitter at accessible media inc on facebook with prices going up and policies changing will you cancel some of your subscriptions for streaming services yes no or i already have at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter. You should be voting every single day on the daily polls and getting involved in the comments section to share your broader thoughts. Coming up after the break, you get a preview of today's episode of Kelly and Ramya, and Alex has a question about Flag Day. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv and AMI-audio. Kelly and Ramya hits the airwaves, and Ramya Amethan is the co-host of that show and is here to offer up a bit of a preview. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. So, Ramya, what's coming up on the show today? Okay, we have In the Know with Margaret Weldon, and she's talking about Doctors Without Borders today. Uh, lots to talk about with the Mark Gibson. The David Gibson uh, McAnthony Foundation. I don't know if I switched all the words around there. But anyways, she's going to talk about some of these uh, projects and initiatives for people out there. We're also welcoming in a new community reporter because we check in with community reporters Monday, Tuesday, mm -hmm. and Wednesday. And Stephen Ricci is joining us. He's um, already kind of been part of our family, coordinating our CNIB Smart Life segments, but he's going to come on as a community reporter in Toronto. And we have Marcus McCracken coming on. This is going to be fun. We're talking accessible video 
video gaming specifically, and he's a pretty big uh, blind gamer, so he's going to talk about accessible consoles and games and what he's up to in terms of making things more inclusive. Nice. A nice range of topics there on an episode of Kelly and Remy at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv and AMI-audio. And, of course, just like this show, available after the show on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. Don't for- forget to rate, subscribe, and review and share with your friends and do all that good stuff. It doesn't cost you anything to do, and we appreciate it greatly. Ramya, stay right there because Alex Smythe has some questions for us on National Flag Day. Yeah, Dave, you you mentioned it. It is National Flag Day today, commemorating the first time that our national flag was flown over Parliament in Ottawa. So I kind of wanted to ask a very simple question. What makes for a good flag? Ramya, we'll, we'll start with you. Uh, simple answer, if you can remember it. So, <laughs> you know, we have the maple leaf. It's very easy to remember our flag. Things like that, like where you just know based on what you're looking at, oh, that's the flag of this country, or just be able to associate it because it's uh, an easy-to-remember symbol. You know, Ramya, basic. Ramya, you may have read Alex's mind a little bit here because, Alex, before the show, you and I were talking about flags that are simple but still have some symbols on them. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. You know, it's it's all about as as Ramya mentioned. It has to be memorable. It has to be clean. That that's part of it. Yes. You know, and it has to be distinctive in its own unique way. I I personally love our Canadian flag because you have the iconography of the maple leaf, but you just have the two colors, the red and the white. It's distinctive. You can see it, Dave. As you mentioned, we talked about it. The Japanese flag. A simple white, uh, round red dot on a white flag. You can see it. You can identify it. There's not a lot of time that has to go into processing. Okay, which flag is this? Which stripes? What are the colors? Because there's so many out there that especially rely on just, you know, colored stripes or things like that, where it's like, it gets confusing. I mean, I get confused every single time there's international soccer and it's, Ivory Coast and Ireland, I always mix them up. They're essentially almost the exact same flags, but there's slight variations well, in just, the colors. You just, you, just, just, you just flip it, the orange and the green. The, the orange and the green are on different sides. Yeah, I know. And it's just like, I I get confused by that. I get tripped up on it. And it, it, it gets me every time where sometimes it's France and Italy. Is it blue? Is it green? Am I being a bit colorblind here right now? Like, can I really tell the difference? So... Uh, there, there's a lot of flags out there that are quite similar. So having something that's unique, distinctive, that stands out, and it's easy to identify, it, it makes it a very strong contender for a good flag. Yeah, I, I'm all for the min- minimalism as well. Alex, you mentioned the flag of Japan with the simple red dot in the middle of the white background to represent the rising sun. Really well done. Really beautiful. Uh, Thailand, having an elephant in the middle of their flag. Rock and roll. Well done. I like that. Uh, yeah, simplicity I like. Um, I also am a big fan of certain colors. For example, a couple of South American countries that have really beautiful flags are Argentina using the white and the baby blue. Uh, Uruguay isn't quite baby blue, but it's close to baby blue with some white and some stripes. I don't know, uh, Ramya, I, I know that look, this is a very like visually aesthetic conversation, mm-hmm. so like people are probably tuning this out somewhat so, but are there any colors that you think uh, make for a better flag? I don't know. Like, I genuinely don't know how to answer this question because I look for contrast, right? It, exactly what you mentioned, Alex, about the red and white of the Canadian flag, the very clean. Uh, I mean, maybe the maple leaf has a bit more of the detail around the edges, but it's just a, a simple um, a dark on light 
background, which I enjoy. Now, I can't even tell you the colors in the Sri Lankan flag because it, to me, it just looks like a convoluted mess uh, visually. And as a person with low vision, I cannot identify flags that look too cluttered, crowded, like there's just too much going on. I'm pulling up Sri Lanka's fl- fl- flag right now to have a look yeah. at it. I want to. I want to. I want to see what all the. F- I want to see what all the fuss is about. Uh, well, oh, while you're doing that, border, I'm reading it right now. And while you're doing that, Dave, like the the problem I have is there are quite a few surprising number of flags that are very similar to the American flag. The red and white stripes and a certain number of stars. The stars may vary. They may differ in size or number. But I think like Malaysia. Um, there is even, I mean, you could look at Cuba. It's a, a, a blue and white stars with the red and white stripes. Um, I think it's... Uh, Puerto, Rico, Puerto Rico has Puerto a very Rico, similar flag. Like Dominican Republic there, has a very similar flag. And there's a couple other flag. Southeast Asian ones. Yeah, exactly. So Oof. it's like, it's a surprising number that they're so similar in, in that regard, even though there's slight variations. That can be confusing too for if you're yep. looking at it at a distance or a small flag. Ramya, I just pulled up the Sri Lankan flag. I have no idea how to describe this, but let's go, let's give this an attempt. It's a gold border with another border drawn down the middle of it with green and orange on the left-hand side in some bars. And then there's a maroon background on the right side with what I think is a lion holding a sword. It's a lion holding a sword. Um, again, I imagine the orange and the green, that's probably regionally specific because a lot of the flags of that uh, region have orange and green. Uh, India does. I know Bangladesh does. I believe Pakistan does as well. Um, I'm assuming those are religious colors, green typically being a color associated with Islam. And I don't know what the orange is, but I'm assuming that's probably something uh, Hindi related. Although Hindu, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm making... I'm, I'm making I'm making, uh, I'm making wide stretches here. Oh, sweet. We just put a picture of the Sri Lankan flag up on the air. Wow. Uh, yes. uh, Alex, how did I do with my description? Do you think I did I okay? Mean, you, you nailed the description. It is a busy, 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 busy. flag. There I, are also I, some I lotus leaves in there. Before. Lotus leaves in there and some other stuff going on, some Buddhist symbolism. Uh, like, I'm just looking at these snippet off of Google. And I'm yeah. wondering, how do you even begin to understand what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, it, it's almost like three different pot. flags in one. Yeah, they tried to represent the Buddhism, the uh, Hinduism, and the, oh, I'm sorry, like the, the Singhalese cultures, like all the, the different people yeah, yeah. who live there. Um, but they did too much, if you ask but, me. Which, like, it's it's cool, <laughs> but it like maybe lacks a little bit of simplicity. So, for example, the Irish flag with the orange, the white, and the green, uh, it's meant to represent Protestantism with the orange, Catholicism with the green, and white in the middle is supposed to represent peace between the two sides. Although some would argue it sort of divides the two sides. But you know what? You know what? I'm not going to be. That's I'm where not... the peace is made, Dave. Yeah, it's the I'm, separation it, between the two. There, That's where the oh, peace is made. Okay. Mm, all right. Uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, but here I am, being a little bit uh, snippety here on a Wednesday after on a Wednesday morning. Uh, that's it. We're out of time, guys. No more flag talk. Alex, thank you for this topic. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Ramya, always appreciating your perspective. Thank you for helping me fill in some of my uh, real lacks uh, in Sri Lankan knowledge. This is the most I've ever talked about flags. Thank you. <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is like this is like a Sheldon Cooper episode of Fun with Flags right? on uh, the Big That's Bang Theory. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Fun with flags. That's uh, now that that show's over. We can uh, we can take it. We can take it for ourselves. Fun with flags on now with Dave Brown. That's all the time we have for the show today. Don't worry. We'll be back again tomorrow morning. 
looking forward to uh, catching up with Don Dickinson, who's going to have a preview of Voices of the Walrus, and you'll meet the new community reporter on the show, Nathan Clement in Vancouver, BC. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.